Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. Today's Friday, May 12th, 2023. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, happy Friday, May 12th. Hey, happy Friday, everybody. Hope you had a great week. Hope it was full of good stuff, good vibes. Um, And I already wished everyone a happy Mother's Day, so I don't have to do that today. Um, (laughs) But you know what? Big shout out to all the moms out there. Thank you for being you. You guys are the toughest people in the room at all times. So big shout outs to moms. We wouldn't be here without our moms. And I mean that literally and figuratively. So thank you to both of our moms. Let's save this also for next week. Wait, no, Mother's Day is this Sunday. Shoot. Yeah, you're right. Awesome. Well, mom, happy Mother's Day. This is why I give people two weeks in advance, because you have people like you who don't have their mom figured out for a gift yet. And here I am two weeks in advance giving you guys a a shout out saying, hey, get get after that gift. You know what I didn't do? Get after that gift. (laughs) Let's get after this podcast right now. Time for our quick hits for the week. And the first one is by Chloe Kim of BBC, not the snowboarder, who writes, New York, first U.S. state to ban natural gas in new buildings. So let me start this off by saying we alluded to this on the show a few months ago when we talked about potential gas bans. No one's going to come in and, you know, march right into your home, rip out your gas stove and say, you need an electric stove (laughs) right now. That's not how this is going to work. It's going to be phased out. So last Tuesday, New York State Legislature passed a ban on natural gas for new homes and new buildings in favor of electric heat. This ban is going to exclude manufacturing facilities, restaurants, hospitals, and car washes. New York already has a ban on gas cooking in buildings under seven stories by 2026 and 2029 for buildings seven stories and up. Natural gas creates indoor air pollution when it burns, so environmental activists see this as a win for both the climate and also public health. Yeah, and this article points out that gas is still cheaper than electricity for many New Yorkers, so some state Republicans called this government overreach. Um, The ban also applies to propane and heating oil. So New York State is the first state to outright ban gas in new homes, but Washington and California have used their building codes to kind of promote or incentivize electrification. Yeah, and on the other hand, 20 states have stopped their cities from enacting natural gas bans. So New York kind of the lone actor right now. Yeah, and what's interesting is like, not to dive into this too much, but the whole government overreach thing, it's just it's just very much hypocritical to call it government overreach to say, you know, you need to do this when the other side is saying, you absolutely cannot do this. You know, you can't ban natural gas in your cities, even though your city is trying to push for that. I don't know, man. It's just like, it's so frustrating that we have all of this data pointing to gas is really bad for the environment, Yeah, right? Like it's creating emissions every single time we go to cook something, every single time we fire up our heat when it's cold in the winter. Yep. Electricity is going to you know, create some emissions from actually turning everything on. But as we get more renewables into the grid, 
it's going to have less and less of an environmental impact to, to heat your home. And in this case, you know, the one for, for gas cooking really hits close to home because we talked about this you know, last time we brought up gas stoves. We both like cooking with gas. Yeah. You know, it, it, it cooks very well. Yes. But every single time that flame is going up in your kitchen, you are breathing in nitrous oxide pollution. Yeah. Listen, it's, it's the best thing to cook on. Um, there's a reason that they're not, they're excluding it, um, from restaurants, but ultimately this comes down to like public health. It's Mm -hmm. actually a win-win. We don't want people's health to be impacted. And we also don't want our atmosphere to be, uh, or our planet to be unlivable in the next, you know, 35, 40 years. So, uh, two things, both getting, uh, stunted by, this this uh, band. So good stuff. New York State. Yeah. And, and what's interesting to me is I, when I was reading the article, it said that the alternatives to gas cooking are electric cooking, which, you know, I grew up with an electric stove. I have an electric stove now in my apartment. There's also induction cooking, which I, I really don't know enough about. Um, yeah. Have you ever cooked on an induction stove? I don't know if I have. I don't think I have. So my, my general understanding, and like, if you're a listener and, and you understand this better than I am, please reach out to me and we'll correct it on the show next week. But like, you have to use these special types of pots and pans. Like I think carbon steel works, cast iron, I believe works. Um, but there, there's some component that heats up when it goes over what's like kind of the burner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it transfers heat through that and apparently gives like a really even cook the same way that gas would, you know, just without gas burning right in your face as you're cooking. Yeah. It seems like that's like the future too, because it gets like hotter faster, like with an yeah. electric, it's like so long to heat up. I feel like it, it maybe it's just dependent on the, like the one I have here and the one I have at home, both take a while to heat up. But uh, yeah, it's, that's the most frustrating part for me is like waiting for the, the um, pan to get hot. I'm just sitting there with my, my, my head in my hands, like, come on. And that was cooking with Matt and Nick. <laughs> All right, let's try and get back on track here with our next story. And it's by Nivedia Ballou of Reuters, who writes, Apple to use only recycled cobalt in batteries by 2025. Yeah, so this is great news as Apple continues its efforts to be carbon neutral by 2030 to create the batteries that charge iPhones, iPads, you know, really any rechargeable Apple technology. They have to use precious metals and to reduce the environmental impact of these batteries Apple has said that it's going to use magnets that are made with recycled rare earth elements and the circuit boards are going to be using recycled tin soldering and gold plating. Apple also doubled its financial commitment to a fund it established two years ago to remove carbon from the atmosphere. Cobalt is typically produced by mining copper and nickel, but mines in the Democratic Republic of Congo are rich in cobalt. Because of that, several tech companies have been accused of enabling the deaths of children in the DRC who were forced to mine. In 2022, Apple used 25% recycled cobalt, so this is a really good update and much needed. The article closes by saying Apple uses recycled materials for over two-thirds of all aluminum, nearly three-quarters of all rare earth metals, and more than 95% of all tungsten in its products. So for me, you know, they, they brought up the ethics of mining. Right. They said that in the Democratic Republic of Congo, there's been tech companies that have been accused of just, you know, basically being okay with child labor and the the deaths of children that, Mm. you know, end up working in the mines. So anytime we can avoid that, that's a good thing to me. Yeah. Yeah. No question. I mean, 
the the whole like precious metals thing is I feel like really coming into play now. We're hearing more and more about it, especially with like electric vehicles too. Even like we're hearing so much about like um, cobalt mining and you know iron mining and all this other stuff, um, nickel and stuff. I don't know. I think we're going to see even more of these stories like popping into the news cycle, um, where you know companies in the past have just completely ignored or overlooked just basic human rights um and yeah apple is certainly one of those companies yeah yeah exactly and you know it's good to see that they're from the outside looking in it it appears like they're making a real genuine attempt to you know not only get carbon neutral by 2030 like they said but also Mm -hmm. start to you know disincentivize like child labor forced child labor yeah so the other thing that i wanted to bring up here how many people have iphones how many people have iPads? The sheer number of batteries that we're seeing right now, it's astronomical. And you got to think every single time you're done with an iPhone, there are parts in that phone that can be reused. So to continue to, to get life out of these products that, you know, maybe past their lifespan, that's awesome too. And, you know, the, the next thing that I want to see from Apple is we should be able to fix our own iPhones or bring it to a store to fix it without breaking the warranty or like needing to go to an Apple store. But mm. recycling is a really, really good step in that direction. Yeah, a hundred percent. And that's something I could definitely be better about. I have like freaking three old iPhones that I need to like recycle because they're just, they're not doing anything for me. I literally just like have them. It's always the, in case I break my current phone and then. <laughs> yes, yep. exactly. And then I just keep forgetting to like get rid of the old one and recycle it. Like just terrible for like a, <laughs> just a terrible. <laughs> that person, is uh, so. that is low praise for yourself. <laughs> All right. Next up is something new we're going to try here. It's this week's environmental policy roundup. And the reason that we want to do this a little bit differently is because this is a really important field. We also recognize it's not the most fun to talk about. You know, environmental policy isn't sexy. No. I hate to break it to myself who majored in environmental policy. <laughs> but we will try to summarize a bunch of stories quickly, discuss them briefly if we need to, and that'll take us directly into the break. Yeah, so some policy stories will definitely still get a full segment, but we're going to try to limit it to the most important policy story of the week for that one. Uh, The next three articles are all linked in your show notes, so definitely go check them out if you want some more in-depth coverage. Montana's Republican-led state legislature passed several laws, making it harder to regulate fossil fuel use in the state, making it more expensive for citizens to challenge government decisions, and banning carbon emissions reviews. Cities and counties will no longer be able to determine where pipelines, power plants, or even gas stations are located. They are officially off-limits to local zoning and environmental regulations. The EPA's push for consumers to get into electric cars faster would reportedly save Americans trillions of dollars due to savings in climate, health, and vehicle maintenance over the next 30 years. Based on average U.S. electricity and gasoline prices, fueling an electric vehicle costs about $0.05 per mile, whereas a gas car costs $0.12 per mile. EVs also have fewer parts that can break down and need to be replaced. Switching to EVs also drastically lowers tailpipe emissions associated with premature death and serious health effects related to respiratory and cardiovascular illnesses, non-fatal heart attacks, aggravated asthma, and decreased lung function. Texas is one of the sneaky leaders in clean energy in the United States, and I say sneaky because you wouldn't expect a state with legislature that is so anti-clean energy to also be one of the leaders in clean energy output. 
Texas has ideal conditions for both solar and wind. A new bill passed in the state Senate has created tighter restrictions on where solar and wind farms can be located, implemented yearly fees, and can even retroactively remove permits if they don't meet the new standards. The Solar Energy Industries Association estimated that Texas is going to add 36 gigawatts of solar over the next five years, building on the 16 gigawatts that is active to date. Despite the job growth that comes with the clean energy boom and a clean economy, Texas state legislatures have decided to try to keep fossil fuels afloat for as long as they can. The bill now leads to the Texan House of Representatives. So, hey, let us know what you think of this new segment. If you liked it or if you want more discussion and, you know, the, the very quick summaries aren't really doing it for you, let us know. You know, your feedback is always appreciated here on TPT. Yeah, and you know what? This is like the part of the show that like your buddy's going to skip, but you listen and then you're like, yeah, dude, you're such an idiot. You didn't even listen to the, the policy update. <laughs> you don't know what's going on in Texas right now? Yeah, what are you, what are you doing, dude? You policy idiot. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, we're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we got two more quick hits for you. Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Valo Alta. Valo Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, reignited fire at Shell's Deer Park Chemicals facility extinguished Sunday night, officials say, by Lucho Vasquez of Houston Public Radio. Deer Park, Texas is the site of a chemical fire that took off last Friday at a Shell chemical plant. Over the next several days, a large amount of water was used to contain the fires that burned heavy gas oils. The water had to be diverted into the Houston Ship Canal as local wastewater facilities were already at capacity from helping out with the wastewater from this fire. The Texas Commission on Environmental Quality began conducting air monitoring in the area shortly after the initial fire broke out with the help of the Harris County Pollution Control and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. So far, officials say they have not detected any harmful levels of chemicals affecting neighboring communities. The deputy director of the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, Kelly Cook, said they would continue to monitor the situation. Cook also said that they're going to investigate how the incident happened and also Shell's decision to discharge that excess wastewater into the Houston Ship Canal because that decision was allegedly not authorized. To me, this is just super frustrating because you know you have this company with an estimated $261.8 billion value, according to Forbes, and... You know, I hope I'm wrong about this, 
but it seems like it's going to be another classic case of they pay a fine, they do a PR commercial about, hey, we're using this special soap to clean up the water and all of the animals that got contaminated by this. And then they just kind of hope that everyone forgets. Yep. But the neighborhoods that are impacted by this, you know, they're, they're never going to forget. The, the BP oil spill was how many years ago now? And, you know, we, we talked about the impacts of that, I think sometime last summer and how like yeah. wildlife is still not fully recovered. The people there are, are still not fully recovered from the like respiratory illnesses that are associated with oil just being in the water around you. Yeah, this also, like BP is a perfect example, but this also reminds me of the Norfolk Southern, Southern thing that we just had happen too in East Palestine. Yeah. Where, you know, oh, officials say it's good to go. Like you can you can stay there and use the water and all this stuff. We don't know. Like you just don't know. And like we just had the other day, Norfolk Southern's paying homeowners near the derailment site. It's just, it's going to take, you know, months before we really know what's what's going on here and, and uh Hopefully the people in that area are, are okay. Yeah, and and I guess, you know, the important part to hammer home here is the reason that we're saying, like, you don't know is because it's not like the Houston Ship Canal is isolated, right? That water leads somewhere. Yeah. That water comes from somewhere. It's all part of a greater watershed. So presumably some of that wastewater is going to get out into this watershed. And then, you know, where, where do we go from there? So, yeah. I don't know, like maybe I'm being a little biased here. If it was a different kind of manufacturing plant that isn't associated with shell, isn't associated with fossil fuels, like I would still be concerned. I'd still be concerned for the ecosystems, for the people about it or people around it. But I don't know if I'd be as mad as I am when I read like another screw up by yeah a fossil fuel company, this time related to their chemical division. But like it's it's all the same stuff here. I feel like we talk about Shell, BP, Exxon all of the time where like something goes wrong, the environment's damaged, the ecosystem is damaged, and all of a sudden at the end, like taxpayers end up paying for maybe not the cleanup, but they're going to be paying for their medical bills. You know, they're going to be paying for the, the impacts that are longer lasting us having a story about like Shell or like one major oil company just having like a massive screw up on this show is like as sure as eggs, like for every single year of, that we do this show. It's it's going to happen at some point. We always have a story about them, either w- whether it's uh, neglect or greed. Uh, they will always look out for their wallets before looking out for uh, people around us, uh, people around them. So yeah, and and. How many times are we going to have to see a community impacted by a fossil fuel company not either like doing its due diligence or or following protocols or doing everything right? But sometimes it just happens when you're producing chemicals, when you're refining oil. Like this is something that we have assumed the risk of for so long. And I'm sick of us being the ones who have to pay the brunt of the impacts. Yeah, it's such a good point. Such a good point. It's the nature of the business. That's that's really what it is. You're right. Yeah. You could be as careful as you want. It's still going to happen. Yeah. And like the difference is with, with solar energy, with wind energy, if something goes wrong and something breaks down out in a solar field, it's not going to cause like 
irreparable harm to people's respiratory and cardiovascular systems. Yes. And with anything, something can go wrong. Nothing has a 100% success rate. So that's, that's why I get so frustrated with the, the fossil fuel economy in general. Yeah, no, totally understood. All right, let's get into our last quick hit of the week, and it is from WSVN News Miami, and it's titled, Indianapolis Zoo Offers $1 Million Grant to, to Save Endangered Species. The Indianapolis Zoo's new grant is accepting pre-applications until June 4th, with full applications due on December 3rd of this year. The goal is to find a measurable and sustainable impact on the future of an endangered species, which the winner will have five years to implement after being announced in February of 2024. The zoo's grant challenge has been praised by conservation scientists, including John Paul Rodriguez, chair of the IUCN, who said the Indianapolis Zoo Saving Species Challenge is visionary and will focus attention on achieving a significant impact on the survival of a species. The article says the grant is open to field conservationists around the world, and the zoo encourages anyone with a passion for wildlife to apply. I love that last part so much. And like, I really don't think I can emphasize that enough, but sometimes the barrier for entry to conservation can be really challenging and really expensive. And I think the zoo encouraging anyone with that passion for wildlife to apply says that anyone with the right idea should go out and do that. Yeah. And this grant is going to help fund your idea. Because funding is often the hardest part. You know, how many people are absolutely brilliant out there, but don't have the right opportunity or, you know, can't afford to pursue their dreams? Yeah. No, it's it really is so cool and, and unique, too. And I think it's probably like I, and I don't know this field like you do, but I'm assuming this is kind of like a a barrier breaker for sure. Like this is this is a way um, I'm, I'm thinking of how like there are just some artists like I'm thinking of Maggie Rogers and how she broke through at like uh NYU with NYU Pharrell, exactly it's just like Pharrell's doing like his thing and and he has like a bunch of young artists come in whatever it's the same thing here you're giving a bunch of people an opportunity that would not normally have that chance and and if they have the stuff to do it let them freaking do it that's what that's what's so cool about it I think that's can be done in in so many different industries and uh if you're at the top of something I think you should always be looking out for people below you who are just starting out and trying out. So yeah, good on the Indianapolis Zoo. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think what's also important to come out of this is like the reason they're calling it a challenge is because they're picking a winner who's going to get a $1 million grant. So many people with awesome ideas are probably going to apply to this. And I think if you apply and don't get chosen as the winner, someone is reviewing that. Yeah. Right. And someone from the Indianapolis Zoo and their team, you know, whoever else they're working on with this could read your idea and say, hey, you know, we we found one that had a more immediate impact that we're going to send the grant money to. But we want to help you develop this. Here is a connection to another organization that we want you like. Yes. There's no reason why someone with a good idea shouldn't apply. And like, that's what I love about this. Yeah. A hundred percent. And that reminds me of like you apply to a job you don't get the job but you like they give you like a connection and they're like yeah like you should reach out to this person because like they whatever like they uh, need help and they might need you for something like this boom you know like it's it there's always something else so definitely don't get discouraged and still apply yeah i'd say the the lesson here is like always let someone else be the one to say no 
You know, don't yes. tell yourself they're never going to pick me. They might. Yeah. They might. So if you're listening and you really care about an endangered species and you know a lot about an endangered species, put together a plan. You know, the, the worst thing that happens is the Indianapolis Zoo says no thanks. Yeah. And closing note here, I, I just want to say this is also why I'm such a strong supporter of zoos and aquariums that are accredited by the AZA, the Association for Zoos and Aquariums. This is not your Tiger King roadside zoos. These are like your San Diego Zoo, your Bronx Zoo, your Indianapolis Zoo. Your creme de la creme. Yeah, the ones that are research and conservation focused. You know, they're nonprofits and the money from your tickets, the money from your concessions, from your souvenirs, it goes towards protecting wildlife out in the wild, out in nature. Yeah. Their ecosystems, the other animals in their food web. Like that's what your money is going towards when you go to those zoos and go to those aquariums. So, you know, I, I get why zoos and aquariums aren't for everybody, but I totally find them necessary as long as they're, they're, you know, conforming to the standards of the AZA. Yeah. Good to know. All right. That will do it for today's episode of TPT on Monday. We will be back with this month's interview with special guest Carlton Ward Jr. of National Geographic to talk about his new book and his new documentary, Path of the Panther. Until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can and follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Nick Janusa is our producer and makes all the music you hear throughout our show. Nick, where can people hear more of your stuff? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. Our logo is made by Kaylee Veet. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Peace. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. Love you. <laughs>